From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The closure of I-70 through Glenwood Canyon affects lives and livelihoods. Long detours mean higher trucking costs. Automatically, they're asking for three or $400 more load to move the same loads that they moved last week or the week prior. Then, some good environmental news. A technology that can help farmers fight water loss and soil degradation. If you can prevent those environmental impacts before they occur, that's infinitely easier than trying to clean them up in the future. Also, an otherworldly plant discovered in Rocky Mountain National Park. And the first American woman to win gold in Taekwondo. She lives in Colorado Springs and tried to manage her expectations. I was just there enjoying myself and having a good time and just fighting. And I think that led to me winning. Local, national, and international reporting from NPR and Colorado Public Radio has a long history of holding the powerful to account by addressing false narratives with verified facts. Philanthropic support makes this kind of reporting possible, and it strengthens our ability to deliver trustworthy, fact-based journalism essential to our democracy. Explore all ways to give and make your gift on the support page at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Ryan Warner. You don't give much thought to a road until it's closed. It may be weeks before I-70 through Glenwood Canyon is open again, and the impacts on everyday life are almost mind-boggling on truckers, commuters, tourists, and possibly on the price of pet food. I reached Greg Aishman. He's a freight broker in Denver. He helps get raw ingredients from California to a processing plant in Greeley, then on to pet food makers. The freight we move comes from Sanger, California, near Fresno, and Vernon, California, in the L.A. area. So naturally, those trucks would route right down I-70 through the canyon, up through Denver to Greeley. So in order to route the trucks around that, it adds an additional approximately 90 miles to take them up through Salt Lake along I-80 and down from Cheyenne. So automatically, the motor carriers, which I negotiate the rates with, that adds another $300 on approximately a load that I have to try to negotiate down because I can't bill my customer that. So, you know, it's whose fault is it that Glenwood Canyon is shut down? It's not my customer's fault. It's not the motor carrier's fault, but they have to incur the cost to route around the closure. And that's time and fuel and wear on vehicle. Yes, it is. Just for the trucks, you're looking at approximately $40 more in fuel probably 55 to $60 in driver wages that doesn't count your fuel tax and road use tax, company overhead. That's just out of pocket that the motor carriers have to pay to uh, you know keep their profit margin the same. Again, they need to charge me more money, which I have to figure out how I'm going to charge my customer more money. What I'm hearing is that there's very little room in the system to absorb the extra cost. And so the very, yeah, who, who bears that cost? And I don't feel like you have a clear answer on that, Greg. I don't. Uh, right now, it is actually my company and primarily, you know, our team that has to negotiate with the motor carriers. So basically, we have to meet together and say, OK, Mr. Motor Carrier, Mrs. Motor Carrier, 
what is this costing you? How can we come to a happy medium? And then it's incumbent on my chain of command to negotiate higher rates with the customer because you hit the nail on the head. Who's going to pay for this? Our business is a business of pennies. So, I mean, every penny counts. And if I have to, you know, uh, pay two, $300 more on a truckload, then we might not make any profit on that load. So that, that's the question right now is who pays the extra freight for these trucks? Not only that, but it, produ- it affects the production at this plant because this stuff goes right from the truck right onto the line. So if they're not meeting their production goals, the loads go out of here late, then the producer on the other end, they're late producing their product. Again, you have that domino effect. In Greeley, you're talking about. Yeah, from Greeley then to the different plants we ship it throughout the United States. What exactly is being transported from California, Greg? From Sanger, California, we haul byproduct chicken, which is further remanufactured in Greeley, Colorado, and then shipped out to pet food plants to combine with the grain to make the finished pet food product. From Vernon, California, we load salmon, frozen salmon, with the same process, uh, reprocessing it in Greeley to ship out to pet food plants throughout the country. Now, Greg, I know you're an expert in logistics, not pet food per se, but is it possible that I might pay more to feed my cat Bob as a result of the closure of the canyon eventually? Uh, Depending on how long that closure, you know, how long it endures, sure, there is a a point. And any good businessman, if he has to pay more for a service, he's got to charge his customer. Nobody wants to incur the extra cost for the logistics. And that's a challenge we're up against every day. We still have to move the freight and how much do we pass on to our customer versus how much do we eat. So sure, yes, that, that's very possible that you may pay more in your pet food prices. Now, you've mentioned the I-80 detour, and that's going north uh, instead of 70. Is there any discussion of back roads or, you know, something that's just a little bit sketchy? Yeah, if you're in a uh, four-wheeled vehicle, naturally you would detour up through Craig and Steamboat Springs, down through Silverthorne. In a big truck, that's not so feasible. Uh, Those roads are not designed for big trucks. uh, So you would want to, there's no fuel stops along that route. So that's a big thing. You know, most motor carriers pretty much will detour from the I-15, I-70 junction up through Salt Lake City, across to Cheyenne, and then down. Do you like your job right now, Greg, or is this a particularly stressful chapter? You know, it's just one addition. You know, our business is a business of dotting I's and crossing T's on every load. So it's another challenge, but it it definitely hurts. Uh, The California truck market is already extremely competitive with produce running and what little hair I have, I pull out all the time trying to cover that freight. And now I have another challenge, which pretty much puts me into a negative profit margin on those loads because automatically they're asking for three or $400 more load to move the same loads that they moved last week or the week prior. I gather that you are waiting with bated breath to see I-70 through Glenwood Canyon reopen. Uh, Yes, I am. The sooner the better, uh, but I would rather them take their time and and clean it well so we don't have to deal with this again in another three months or two weeks or whatever. So uh, we're waiting patiently. Thanks, Greg. Okay. Thank you, Ryan. Have a great day. Greg Aishman is a freight broker with Transportation Services Incorporated in Denver. 
Just one business affected by the closure of I-70 through Glenwood Canyon. If your life or livelihood has taken a hit, share your story. Email coloradomatters at cpr.org. That's coloradomatters at cpr.org. She's the first American woman in Olympic history to win gold in Taekwondo. 18-year-old Anastasia Zolotich lives and trains in Colorado Springs. We actually reached her in Bosnia, where she's visiting family after her victory in Tokyo. Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah, thank you for having me. You'd never competed in the Olympics before and went in thinking that it would be good exposure for Paris 2024. Take me to the moment you realized you were having a golden performance. I think the moment I realized I was actually having a golden performance, if you'd say, is when I beat the Turkish girl, Hatice. We fought so many times before. I think that was our sixth time fighting together at the counting the Olympics. And she's beat me five times. So for me to beat her this one time, it was kind of like, okay, so I must be on top of my game or something. Because like, for me to have lost to her five times and, you know, beat her at the Olympics, you know, I'm doing something right today. So I think that's when me and my coach were kind of like, maybe we can go all the way now. (laughs) Were there any other cues that you were in the zone? I think just my confidence going in. I haven't felt like we were at the Olympics the whole time we were there and not even feeling like I'm competing at the Olympics on my competition day kind of like helped because, you know, I, I didn't have that stress or I didn't have those fears that I'm sure a lot of other athletes there were having. And, you know, oh, my God, am I going to win the Olympics? Am I going to lose? I was just there enjoying myself and having a good time and just fighting. And I think that also kind of like led to me winning because if I feel like if I was nervous and stuff, I definitely wouldn't have gotten as far as I did. My dad has this expression. He says your level of serenity is in direct proportion to your level of expectation. So it sounds like you didn't have super high, crazy expectations going into this. No, I think me and my coach just had a very long talk about it. And we're like, look, we're not going in here with any expectations. We're going in here to fight and win or lose. I'm trying to just better my performance from my last competition. And that's exactly what I did. And look at the outcome. I won the Olympic gold medal. You said that it didn't even quite feel like you were at the Olympics, that you were just enjoying yourself. Is that a function of, I mean, I I know that there are fewer spectators in all the venues. There are all kinds of rules and precautions around the Olympic Village. Is that influencing the picture for you? I think it was more the fact that I've been waiting so long for the Olympics to happen because I did qualify a year ago. And I had all those emotions like, oh my God, I'm excited. I'm ready. I'm nervous. I'm scared. And When I did qualify, it was three months until the Olympics, so I was kind of freaking out then. But I've had time to kind of settle settle those scares and, you know, put those butterflies away. So when I got there, it was just like, I'm enjoying myself now. Let's do this. Let's do this thing. (laughs) Have you had some nice moments with family in Bosnia? Yeah, I mean, I haven't seen them in such a long time. And my uncle, his wife, they just had twins. And so we got to see the little babies. They're eight months old. I mean, I miss my family greatly. And, you know, we're all getting older. And it's nice to see cousins you haven't seen in a while and catch up on things that, you know, you don't get to catch up on every day other than over a phone. To Taekwondo, a martial art that originated in Korea, has been an Olympic sport since 2000. 21 years later, 2021, you're the first American woman to win gold. Why do you think it took this long? 
I couldn't process it at the time. I didn't even think about it. I kind of went in there to, you know, like I said, to enjoy and just fight. And I, I didn't even know I'd be making history if I won this gold medal. Oh. And it's kind of a good thing I didn't just because I'm sure there'd be a ton of extra pressure on myself that I didn't need or want. But I think it's just because in the U.S., everybody's got their own clubs in different states and you struggle to find training partners and everybody just does it for fun. And if you get to the Olympics, I mean, you get there and you've got your coach. And I think because we have this resident program and, you know, I train full time now and I have had opportunities that others haven't like to go around and fight in different countries and different states. And I'm a fully funded athlete now. So having those opportunities and that type of support that they didn't have back then, I think that's another reason why this was possible. Yeah. So I hear you saying that it just took time for the sport to have the systems mm -hmm. in place to support athletes. Yeah. How did COVID affect training? Because I think of Taekwondo as a contact sport, a close sport. Did you have like a cohort you felt comfortable with? Well, I was fortunate enough to where I had two other of our resident athletes living with me at the time that were renting a space in my uh, house. And we took it upon ourselves to kind of put some mats down in our basement. And we're like, listen, we're going to keep training. We're going to keep pushing through this because, you know, it's so easy to just be like, yeah, nobody else is training. Why should we train? Or nobody else is watching their weight. Why should we watch our weight? Oh, yeah, we can take a three-month vacation and, you know, rest and go and explore the state. But we were um, professional enough to be like, hey, can we take some mats from the gym? And they course they let us and huh. our coach was supportive of it he zoomed us every day and pushed us so wait just as a picture y'all are in your basement in colorado springs and then you're zooming in your coach yes exactly okay. what we're doing now but with some mats on the floor and two <laughs> other athletes i wonder in what ways taekwondo helps not just your body but your mind mm -hmm. do you find it healing meditative spiritual even i don't know yeah, definitely. I think as a child is super, um, you know, kids are wild and they don't listen to their parents and they want that toy at the store and your parents say no, you start crying. I mean, it's a very disciplined sport. And I think that definitely changed the way I look at things. Taekwondo has caused me to kind of mature a little faster than I feel like people I see day to day. And like I went to school with, I felt like I was a little more mature than all of them because I had that discipline I was taught at such a young age. And Taekwondo is such a disciplined sport. And I think that's what kind of caused me to mature. And I had to travel at 10 years old by myself and go to different countries and kind of learn to be responsible and um, depend on myself. And yeah, my parents did like check up on me and help me. And without them, there's no way I would have become the person I am today. But it has caused me to kind of grow up in a way. And I'm only 18 years old, but sometimes I forget it. And I feel like I'm like 30 years old. I'm making these decisions. And my mom's like, hold on. You, ha you Who told you you could do that? I'm like, mom, like, come on. <laughs> it is super healing as well. I think I'm a very aggressive person sometimes because of it. Not like in a very bad way, but in a, when I'm in the sport, it definitely lets me pull out my frustrations. And it's okay because that's what the sport is. I'm not <laughs> yeah. going on the street and jumping somebody, but <laughs> I'm able to put some gloves on and start punching and kicking somebody in training and take it out on there, whether they deserve it or not. Hey, we're doing those drills. And if I'm hitting you hard, it's, it's okay. <laughs> Tell me about the first time you were on a mat. Um, it's so hard to remember, but you know, I was super young and, but the first tournament I remember, I think I was like eight, 10 years old. I put on a black belt and I wasn't, I didn't earn this black belt yet, but I wanted to see how far I could go. And I begged my coach because it was an only black belt tournament. And I wasn't a black belt yet. And I was like, come on, please. I just want to fight. You know, all my teammates are older than me. And I'm like, well, they all get to go. And he's like, 
well, they're all older. I mean, they're all black belts and they all fit in these weight categories and you don't. And I'm like, come on, come on, please. I promise I'll be good. Or like, I promise I'll push myself. And so I, I fought at that event and I remember I got to the finals or, and I'm losing by like two points and there's like 10 seconds left. And my coach like yelled at me to do something. I turned around because I was so angry and, and I got hit and I broke my nose and that's why my nose is broken. And, um, and you sort of, you sort of <laughs> showed me your profile there. I can't tell, but okay. Sure. Yeah. It's this little bump there. And if you look, my, my septum's kind of, I can't breathe through one of my nostrils, but anyway, that's beyond the point. I, I pushed myself to do it. And I was so proud of myself that I like got on the mat. But at the time I was very angry because I did lose and I get, <laughs> got a silver medal. But my coach, I think that's when he was kind of like, Hey, do you want to go international and, you know, push yourself to those levels. And we worked for my black belt. He made me work for my black belt. He's like, look, you can't be running out this black belt anymore. So I did end up getting my black belt. It took me another year or two, but I finally did it. And I got to go international and then be, I became one of the most dominant junior athletes you've ever seen. I think if it wasn't for that moment, I stepped on that mat and was like, look, I want to push myself and see how far I can go. At eight years old, it's pretty impressive. I feel like, you know, not many eight year olds are like, I want to fight somebody up 16 years old. <laughs> But um, I will never forget that moment. And I'm very happy you asked me, actually. <laughs> oh, I'm, I'm happy. You're happy. We're having a little bit of a drop out of the connection. So your voice, voice has changed a bit. But no, I'm sorry. Uh, no, don't be. This is going to sound like a dumb question. It's not illegal to fight with a black belt, even though you aren't one. That doesn't break the rules. I don't think so. I mean, at okay. the time, it was a local a local event. Some club hosted it. It wasn't like a, a sanctioned event. I don't even think it mattered. Half those black belts were probably not even black belts. <laughs> But I <laughs> okay, just checking. But we kind of just pulled up, and we're like, "Hey, we're here." So, <laughs> and the broken nose didn't dissuade you, huh? I mean, I just think if I got my nose broken by something, I don't know that I'd continue it. You know, I'm gonna be honest with you. That girl that broke my nose, I hunted her down for the next two, three years, and made sure she got what she deserved afterwards. You call me crazy, but I, I know the first girl I ever lost to when I was in Germany. I still follow her, like. I, I see her at events and I'm like, we don't fight the same weight class. She fights 49 kilos and I'll never make that weight. But I st I'm like, oh, if she moves up, I'm jumping right on it. Like, she's wow. going to be the first person I fight. <laughs> okay. Before we go, I'm very curious what you do with your medal. Did you bring it to Bosnia to show the family? I did. It's right here. Oh, look at that. It is even on this somewhat hazy video chat you can see it's just sparkling and it's it's huge it's very heavy i'm telling you you can lift weights up with it <laughs> thank you so much for being with us i appreciate your time mm -hmm. yeah i appreciate you reaching out to speak to me 18 year old anastasia zolotic is the first american woman to win olympic gold in taekwondo she lives and trains in colorado springs <laughs> People celebrate access to the outdoors in Colorado, but half of all Latinos here lack that access, according to a new report. And it may keep them and other people of color from careers in parks and recreation. CPR's Miguel Otarula reports on a Western Slope program working to change that. It's a Friday morning in late June. Many high school kids are sleeping in or sitting in front of the television. But these students are up early for a lesson on Colorado's plants and animals. 
Brian Gray, a district wildlife manager with Colorado Parks and Wildlife, is taking them to a creek near Newcastle on the western slope. We're on private property here, guys, so let's not mess around with anything around here. This doesn't belong to us. Some in the group look like they'd rather be anywhere else. Instead, they're here, learning about places not many people like them get to see. The Center for American Progress, a think tank based in Washington, D.C., says more than half of all Latinos in the state are nature-deprived. That means they lack equal access to places like forests and wetlands. That figure is even greater when you include all people of color across the state. Upward Bound is trying to correct that. It's a free year-round program that prepares low-income and first-generation students for life after graduation. This particular group is hosted by Colorado Mountain College, and it's made up mostly of Latino students. Their trip today was all about water. Most of the students I talked to weren't particularly interested in a career outdoors. They wanted to be doctors, engineers, or missionaries. Michelle Grindstaff, a student at Coleridge High School in Newcastle, says the Latino community doesn't really get out to nature much. Um, I know my family, personally, um, we don't go a lot out because we don't know where we're allowed to go and where we're not allowed to go. Another Coleridge High student named Michelle Centillion was one of the few answering questions during the trip. She loves science and has dreams of becoming a pediatrician, so the program taught her a lot about Colorado's natural environment. I'm really glad that I actually got to join, because during the summer I wasn't really doing anything. And I just really enjoyed the things that we get to do and the new people that we get to meet and all. After spending an hour by the creek, the students hopped on a yellow school bus and headed toward Harvey Gap State Park. Most people go here to fish or paddleboard, but the group continued their lesson about non-native fish and who takes care of the reservoir. They then drove out to Rifle Gap State Park. Unfortunately, rain clouds forced them to cut the trip short and head back to the college campus. Gray was unsure whether anything he said had stuck with the group. After all, the people he works with at Colorado Parks and Wildlife have been recreating outdoors since they were little. Probably a big reason why we don't get more other uh, ethnic groups is that they just don't have that experience. You know, I grew up doing, um, you know, hunting and fishing and camping and hiking and all that kind of stuff. And so it kind of came natural to want to continue doing that. Beatriz Soto, one of the counselors for the program, says there's too many barriers keeping people of color from the outdoors. This includes racial profiling, exhausting work schedules, and complicated regulations for campsites and national parks. That's why she says it's important to put in the extra effort and bring the outdoors to them. And this is one of the reasons why we are constantly advocating for equitable access to the outdoors, because that is like the first place where you really feel a sense of belonging in our public lands. Programs like Upward Bound could be making that difference. Michelle Grindstaff, the 16-year-old from Newcastle, says she was inspired by Soto and would be interested in working in tourism or recreation. And it's a career path I never thought to go into, but uh, being able to talk with her and about her career uh, kind of opened that up for me. The students won't all become park rangers or biologists, but if they like what they saw and learned here, it may be enough to keep them coming back. I'm Miguel Otarola, CPR News. Water is in short supply in the West, which either means finding more or using what you have more wisely. And that is what our next story is about. So the major way that farmers get water to their fields is by earthen canals. 
It's an old and inefficient system. A lot of the water seeps into the ground. Stopping those leaks is the mission of Timothy Gates and Joe Scalia. They are engineers and professors at Colorado State University. Tim, Joe, thanks for being with us. Great to be thanks, Ryan. You. Tim, just how inefficient are these earthen canals? Well, they vary from place to place, as you might expect. Measurements have been made, you know, around the world that stretch anywhere from on the order of about 10% up to as high as 70% of the flow that's diverted out of a river into the canal that will seep out of the canal before it gets to the end. That's a pretty wide variation, but if it's getting up to 70%, it's most of the water that's what, leaking into the ground below? Right, and of course that 70% would apply to soils that would tend to have more sand in them as opposed to clay. Because sand allows more seepage. Is that what I hear you right. saying? Right. And so are those... permeable, as we say. <laughs> is sand the, the substance we see in the Western United States? No, I would, I would not say that's the most prevalent. Okay. Um, I would say probably in most of the canals that are delivering water for irrigation out of rivers throughout the West... Uh, would be in soils that might be closer to what we call uh, a loamy or silty soil. So we would not expect to see 70% loss rates as typical (laughs) uh, throughout the West. Okay, well, that's encouraging. If a farmer is losing up to 70% of water from these uh, irrigation ditches, what, what does that mean practically for them, Joe? When a farmer is losing up to 70% of the water that's being diverted into the ditch, what's really interesting is that loss has kind of been baked into the system historically because they're relying on an amount of water delivered to their field that has been delivered. And so the diversion accounts for the seepage that's occurring. But there's a stress on that as we lose the supply to that ditch. And so by losing that water, we're not able to stretch our water needs as far as we have to today. In some ways, I hear you saying that farmers are living in a world of want. They don't necessarily have to if there's a better solution to this, huh? Yes. And it's impacting them in ways that aren't intentional. They may, even in the best of cases, be getting the water that they're expecting but there's environmental consequences to that. Like what? Like what would be where the water is going is potentially impacting them negatively. So as the water seeps from the bottom of this earthen ditch, the water is moving into the ground and raising the level of the aquifer closer to the ground surface. Hmm. As the aquifer moves closer to the ground surface, plants take advantage of that. And so they grab that water and bring it up to the ground surface and use it for respiration. And that water then gets lost to the atmosphere. And so water is being lost, but as it's being lost, it's leaving behind salt. So through time, as water is used by plants, the salt left behind decreases the fertility of those fields and is in the long term 
having a negative consequence that is unintentional. Wow, you just blew my mind there. In other words, it's not just the water loss, but it actually has these natural processes that down the road make things worse for agriculture with those salts, right, Joe? Precisely. And it even gets worse because that behavior then cascades downstream. As the water that's left in the ground returns to the stream or river, it has a higher salt content. And it may have also mobilized some naturally occurring trace elements to that surface water. That stream then flows down and is diverted again for the next set of farmers or ranchers. And the process continues, but as it continues, there's more salt and more trace elements. And so as you go further downstream, the consequences become more and more severe. Oh, I can see why addressing these earthen canals is so important, and they are ubiquitous. So, Tim, Professor Gates, y'all have studied canals in Colorado, essentially in your own backyard, and 7,500 miles away in Pakistan. Why Pakistan? Well, Ryan, we had a project that was funded by U.S. Agency for International Development over the course of a little over four years that allowed us to work with colleagues in Pakistan to address some of the serious water resources problems that they're having there. And in Pakistan, we have the largest irrigation system in the world. They have a vast network of earthen canals that distribute water over many millions of irrigated acres out of the Indus River. And seepage out of those canals is one of the biggest problems that they face. You've studied a substance that can be applied to earthen canals to reduce leakage. LAPAM is linear anionic polyacrylamide, an alphabet soup of letters there. But um, Joe, Professor Scalia, walk us through what it is. So linear anionic polyacrylamide is a petroleum-derived macromolecule, meaning it's a large chain of repeating units that are able to, when added to water, dissolve and grab on to sediment. It knows to cling, if you will. It, it knows to cling and, and to group. As that LAPAM floats through the water, it accumulates sediment that's flowing along in the canal. And when the particle of sediment and polymer gets large enough, it falls to the bottom or to the edge of the canal, creating a thin veneer that seals water into the canal. But Timothy Gates, do I want a petroleum-derived product touching my water or irrigation water? Well, Ryan, you touch on a sensitive issue that has been a concern for us in recent years. Not so much that the polymer itself is a problem, but there are byproducts that can be present within this polymer that we usually apply in a granular form. And that byproduct, if it's in high enough concentration, can be a health risk. Uh, We have done research in the field that has indicated that it's very rare (laughs) that the byproduct will appear in the water at concentrations high enough to actually be a risk. But as you know, when it comes to anything that might pose a potential health risk to people, we want to be very risk averse and and cautious. 
For that reason, we're not moving away entirely from the use of synthetic polymers because they are very effective and we want to understand them better and how they might be safely utilized, but it's pushed us to move toward more environmentally friendly or greener polymers that are sometimes termed biopolymers. Biopolymers. Yeah, I mean, I, I ran across a 2007 risk characterization from the University of Nevada, Reno, that specifically mentions acrylamide, a known cumulative neurotoxin, and a suspected human carcinogen. That's Am I, the byproduct. Yeah. yeah, that's the byproduct. Yes. Uh-huh. How long does this last? So, Joe, you apply it, and do you have to do that each, what, year, season, or what? One of the advantages and disadvantages of using a polymer sealant to remove seepage from a earthen canal is it only lasts for one water season, as far as we know, which means you would have to reapply every water season. Initially, that seems like quite a disadvantage that I have to do this again and again. But a competing advantage is that in Colorado, as in many places, water availability isn't consistent throughout the year. In Colorado, we get most of our precipitation in the winter in the form of snow, and it melts off rapidly. And during that period, we have available water. That's why we've developed this complex system of reservoirs to store that water. And so in a canal, you can take advantage of that and allow seepage into the ground to bank water into the aquifer. Mm. Then you can apply your LAPAM later in the season or in the future, your biopolymer later in the season to reduce the seepage at the time that you have increased water scarcity. Or if you know going into a year that you have a sparse snowpack, you can start the year out by applying your sealant to better engineer a solution for seepage in that ditch at that time. So there's a flexibility, you think, inherent in that. Timothy Gates, why not just line your ditch with concrete? You know, primarily the reason why we don't do that, Ryan, is cost. We've estimated a number of years ago that the cost of repeatedly applying a polymer sealant to a canal to control seepage is on the order of about 5% of what the annual cost is of you know, lining a canal with concrete or geomembrane or some other material that would be more permanent in nature. Well, wow, that's significant savings. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner. We're talking about the huge amount of water that can be lost in earthen canals, the kind that bring water from streams to farms and fields. My guests from Colorado State University are working on solutions. What kind of buy-in do you have locally, Joe, with water users or water systems? The research that we're currently conducting, we couldn't be doing without cooperation from local ditch companies that are corporations formed by growers in Colorado that are in charge of these ditches. And so they're allowing us to access their ditches. They're allowing us to get out into the field and take measurements of seepage to run tests on their canals to look at how seepage is reduced with different treatments and to really be able to get field data to substantiate 
what we can't effectively show in the lab. I know you're working with a Larimer Weld County ditch, right? It's called the Larimer Weld Irrigation Canal. It's the one we're working with. Listen, even if concrete or another approach were expensive, water in the West is incredibly precious. So losing it means losing a lot of value. Timothy Gates, how, how are we standing by, or how are ditch companies standing by, as, you know, some percentage of water is, is lost to seepage? You're correct, Ryan. It is, you know, as the value gets higher, it makes it more attractive to consider, you know, investing in rehabilitation to your system, like lining or but I would say that generally we've not yet reached that point. <laughs> that that, that pain return. point, that pinch point. Yeah. I right. wonder if climate change is going to be the driving force. It could contribute as well. But another thing to keep in mind is that whenever we make more or less permanent changes to flows of water within systems like these that that span very large areas, Mm -hmm. we always run up against the constraints of our fairly strict water law here in Colorado. And that is something that Joe and I have to be aware of when we work with altering flow patterns due to reducing seepage out of canals. With the idea of prior appropriation, the fact that every drop is spoken for, and anything that changes the algorithm is going to affect a downstream or a senior rights user. Another interesting aspect that hinders these lining projects, in addition to the capital costs, is that the ditches are owned by the growers. Mm. And so they don't have the economics to pay for that capital intensive project up front. And so until that changes, there's not going to be an ability for farmers who are already financially strapped to put up money to line these earthen ditch systems. Right. I'm curious what got y'all into this line of research. Like, are you water nerds? Are you soil nerds? Are you ag geeks? What, what is it, Tim? All the above. (laughs) Yeah. My professional career, Ryan, has focused primarily on understanding how to better design and operate and manage water systems for agriculture and looking at the interaction that occurs between large irrigation systems that include canals and other structures and the natural hydrologic system, how they affect one another. Mm. And at the heart of understanding those interactive processes is seepage out of canals. In a way, it's a language they both speak. It's a a version of water that they exchange, too, uh, as as Joe, I think, so articulately put it. And Joe, are you a farm boy or what? Like, where were the seeds planted for this? I, I would say I'm a soil nerd. That's a great descriptor. My professional area is what's termed geoenvironmental engineering, which is really trying to keep contamination out of the environment or clean it up once it's there. And It's a whole lot easier to keep something from contaminating the environment than to clean it up. It's like trying to put a genie back in the bottle. And the same is true on this canal seepage question. If you can prevent those environmental impacts before they occur, 
that's infinitely easier than trying to clean them up in the future. All those salts, for instance. All those salts. Thank you both, gentlemen. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks, Ryan. Timothy Gates and Joe Scalia are engineers and professors at Colorado State University working to make agricultural canals more efficient. Still to come, the discovery of a new plant species in Rocky Mountain National Park. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. A Palisade peach, unforgettably sweet and juicy, packs a lot of Colorado inside its fuzzy skin. In the late 19th century, as native people were forced from their ancestral homes, farmers started developing land in the shade of the cliffs at the eastern end of Grand Valley on the western slope. The soil was rich, but too dry for fruit trees. Then came John Harlow, who planted peach trees in 1882 with water diverted from the Colorado River. The town of Palisade grew too, and just a few decades later it was shipping more than 25,000 pounds of peaches across the region every day. The winter of 1962 killed most of the existing fruit trees, and the winter of 89 also did damage, but growers have persevered, and today Colorado is the seventh largest peach-producing state. Celebrated for more than 100 years with what's now known as the Palisade Peach Festival, where you can take in a parade, present yourself to the peach queen and her court, and of course, eat a peach. A Colorado postcard from Colorado Public Radio. In Rocky Mountain National Park, They've discovered a new plant species. It has a delectable name. It is small and fern-like and has relatives that date back to the dinosaurs. Among the botanical sleuths crawling on their hands and knees in Rocky to find this was Steve Popovich, a Forest Service botanist who recently retired. Hi, Steve. Hi. Thank you for having me. I wanted you to reveal the name of this plant. What is it? In Latin, it's Botrychium friculatum, which is a mouthful. Fricula from Latin means little fork, and we call it wishbone moonwort. Okay, little fork from the Latin, wishbone moonwort. Unpack those words for us, maybe (laughs) wishbone first. Yes, you know, it's an odd-looking creature, and it has a fork in its branches that forms a kind of a wishbone, the kind that we used to pull apart at Thanksgiving. (laughs) So that's how we gave it the common name. And moon wart is Old English from the Middle Ages, wart referring to alleged curative properties of moon warts. And moon, because they used to think it comes out under a full moon, it's an elusive little creature, Hmm. or because the little leaflets of it tend to look like half moons. Ah, so there are all sorts of moon warts, and this is a specific kind within it then? There are. There's about 20 or 30 moon warts in North America. We have 14 right here in Colorado, and this is a specific kind that's new to science. It's been presumably right under our noses and yet unidentified until now. What makes this plant so hard to, if not spot, maybe differentiate? Well, moonworts are a difficult group of plants to differentiate. They all kind of look the same, but yet they have these subtle differences. And first of all, you have to find the thing. And you'll find moonwort enthusiasts on their hands and knees crawling around looking for it. And then when they find one, they scratch their heads wondering what kind of species it is. And we knew about, you know, different kinds of moonworts in Colorado before, but this one just looked a little bit funny or odd or different. And so we thought, you know, maybe this is worth pursuing the genes on this, 
see if it's genetically different. We sent it off to a specializing lab in Iowa State University. They called and said, hey, you have a new species. This is like a lab in Iowa that specializes in moonwort. Do I have that right? (laughs) You you do. There's actually a lab in Iowa State University that does nothing but analyzes the genetics of moonworts. (laughs) (laughs) Now, on several occasions, you've referred to this as unusual or strange or weird looking. Why? I mean, when I see it, it seems almost, um, I don't know, like a little alien looking or something. Yes, and the way I would say it is if you can imagine what something from the dinosaur days might look like today, this plant looks like it's jumping out of the dinosaur days. It's sort of like a fern, but sort of different. It has these little round grape-looking things or BB-looking things that hold spores, and it has a funny little uh, height to it, and it just is very different than any other group of plants in Colorado. Who got the honor of naming it, Steve? I did. Oh, we really have the guy with us. Okay. And so did you consider other names besides Wishbone? We did. You know, this it makes a little stalk that harbors these little grape-looking things. And that looks almost like the tentacle of an octopus. So we considered tentaculum as a Latin name after tentacle. We considered some other names that uh, would confuse people. So uh, we just decided that wishbone was a name that everyone can relate to. And it hadn't been taken. I suppose you have to look. We do have to look. And you have to look at the the Latin name. Is Botrychium ferculatum taken or not? And it was available. So we decided to name it something that could have some kind of fun around it. I'm curious what makes a plant a different species entirely versus, you know, one that just uh, has slightly different attributes from another? Yes, that's a really good question. So the way that most biologists and evolutionary biologists will look at this is it has to have a certain differentiation in its genetic composition. It has to be to a a threshold or a level of genes that are different from its cousins. And if it reaches that point, then it's a new species. And that's where the lab in Iowa came in. Exactly. Is your sense that this is a rare plant, that it might only dwell in Rocky? No, actually, we have now 65 sites across the western U.S. It ranges from southern Alberta down through the spine of the Rocky Mountains, with Colorado being its sort of hot spot, and it goes down into northern New Mexico. So it's quite common among moonworts, which is kind of interesting because it's been undetected by humans all this time, but yet it's one of the more common moonworts once we figured out what we were looking at. Oh, so you scrambled then to find others elsewhere. You kind of like um, did the PTA phone tree of botanists and deployed others? We did. It's an incurable disease called moonwort madness. (laughs) Once you're inflicted, it's for life. And I would say that over 15 years of looking for this thing from Canada to New Mexico, hundreds of botanists, hundreds of botany enthusiasts, hundreds of government biologists looking on their hands and knees literally for this thing to try to find out how abundant is it? How rare is it? Do we need to conserve it in in management on public lands? What does this thing mean? What can it tell us about uh, evolutionary biology? And that arrived at publishing the species in the American Fern Journal in December of 2020. Okay. But the news of this only just recently came out. Yes, we had to clear this with the park to let the public know that the oh. location we decided to 
collect the type specimen from, the one that says, here's the plant that represents the species. Uh, we just wanted to make sure that the park was okay with letting the world know that we found this new species in the park. Oh, it's fascinating how you have to kind of manage the news of it. And I imagine that some part of you wants to implore people, if they should see this plant in the wild, to leave it be. Yes, you can leave it be. That would be the best. And all plants are best to leave them be. And we don't know enough about the true rarity of a lot of the moonworts. And since they kind of look the same, if you were to pick this or harvest it, perhaps you might be unknowingly harvesting a a, a much more rare moonwort. Hmm. I'm curious how many new plant species you think there are still to discover. And I ask that, of course, against the backdrop of climate change, which is bringing on species extinction. Right. In Colorado, the climate change concern that I have is species having to migrate upward in elevation over time, and they'll eventually run out of room. They'll get to the alpine and they can't go any higher. And what will happen? There are remaining new species to be found in Colorado, but you know we don't find too many new plant species like we used to in Colorado. We, we pretty much have this figured out. So this find was, was a gem of a find because it has some really important aspects about our understanding of speciation about it. Okay, this is going to sound like a drab question, but Steve, in your like epitaph or obituary, would you want this listed, this discovery? <laughs> sure, why not? <laughs> <laughs> okay, we're going to make a note. Make it up, folks. Uh, thanks so much, Steve, for being with us. You're welcome. Thank you. Botanist Steve Popovich recently retired from the U.S. Forest Service in Fort Collins. He co-wrote a paper in American Fern Journal about wishbone moonwort, a new species first identified in Rocky Mountain National Park. And that is Colorado Matters for today, with thanks to the team that's always discovering more stories to tell. Carl Bielek. Allie Budner. Anthony Cotton. Andrea Dukakis. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Michael Hughes. Carla Jimenez. Avery Lill. Pedro Lumbrano. Patrice Mondragon. Shane Rumsey. And I'm Ryan Warner, with special thanks to Nell London. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC.